Greetings, this is Kurt. This is a continuation of the third and largest portion of Book One, Enchanter's Lot. If this is your first visit to the Harkin Theater, we recommend you step back and find the first episode of Prelude, The Hostage Prince. Otherwise, make yourself comfortable as we continue the performances. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and share on your favorite platform. Comments and questions directed to our email will be answered promptly. If you care to be a preferred audience member and help in keeping these complex productions coming, please buy me a coffee via the website coffee.com listed with the description of each episode. And thank you for listening. Step through the gateway and enter the universe of the Harkin Theater. This is Episode 8. The Harkin Theater presents the sound plays of A Bridge of Doom by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Book One, Part Three, Enchanter's Lot. Then it suffices, and he doesn't need any more. I think I can interest him in a little more diversity. Flano was happily immersed in her search for new clothes now that cost was no longer a problem. Since leaving her home village, her old outfit had become badly worn and nearly patched out. And Gaywan's tunic and breeches have gotten rather scruffy as well. He never seems to mind as long as they keep him covered. She sought out the best clothier in the town square. Of course, it went without saying that Hopetown was hardly a merchant's festival. The truly fine cloth makers only to be found in big cities like Creston or Forel. But Hopetown's best wasn't poor fare by any means, offering enough variety to satisfy her expanding tastes. She might have simply bought some cloth and done her own tailoring, but unlike most women who were brought up practicing the domestic necessities, she had spent more of her time practicing the bow as well. Thus, her tailoring skill, though sufficient, was not something she enjoyed spending endless days using. Getting some attention from a shop-bound trader had been awkward at 
first, an undertone of prejudice arising at her being a half-breed woman. But, but once it's clear that I have money to spend, her bias seems to evaporate. Of course, she knew from experience the bias would translate into prices for me. And she promptly left this first shop and headed for the best one. The owners of the second shop, an older married couple, he a clothmaker, she a seamstress, were quite friendly and even seemed to find amusement with her asking opinions of Glink, who, to their eye, was a very smart and well-trained pet. Is this nice, Glink? How do you think? It was while she made her final choices of what to buy this first trip when she heard... Both her arms draped with colorful sashes and skirts, she turned to see the tawny mudcat staring with wide golden eyes at something unseen. Glink? She thought about what Gamon might be Is something happening at the Athenium? He hissed as he arched his back frightfully. Putting aside the stuff in her arms, she stooped to pick him up, then stroked him. There, there. Things are all right. The mudcat's claws dug into her sleeves as he stared unblinking into space. Aware of the close link between wardmate and enchanter, and worried he might be in trouble, Flaina decided it might be prudent to go find him. Floating, flying, Gaewan glided in dream flight over trees and hills under a gray sky. He thrilled in the ecstasy of being liberated from the ground and watched in wonderment at the unfamiliar world passing beneath him. As he gazed about, motion above caught his attention, and he looked at the lower wisps of a dark cloud approaching. The transparent image of a hieroglyphic staring eye emerged from the cloud and came toward him. At the same time, he flew to meet it, unable to divert his path. Fearful at first, for there was something unpleasant about that eye, he averted his gaze but was irresistibly drawn to it again and could not help but look upon it. A strange warmth encircled his awareness. Trees passed by the carriage window as he rode into lengthening shadows toward the setting suns on a road traveled infrequently. A traveler on foot passed by, a familiar face staring forlornly back at him. A face that was his own. Panicking, Gaewan leaped out of the moving carriage and ran as fast as he could down a dark corridor, the walls lined with paintings with staring eyes that followed him. faster. Then the floor gave way and he was falling again into nothingness. Encased in shining, faceted walls, he stood on a pinnacle of stone while around him the air throbbed. I will take you in chapter. You cannot run from me. The dry squirm of snakes constricted around his legs and slithered up his torso. When he opened his mouth to scream in fright, his teeth fell out and away. A spidery hand reached out of the shadows, plunged into his chest as if it was so much clay. Suddenly he could not breathe. He stared in horror at his own heart, still pumping in the awful hand. Light flashed overhead, and he looked up to see a flaming, winged thing. A bird or a man, maybe. But the 
agony in his chest was excruciating as the snakes tightened about his throat. You were mine. Mine. In a last desperate lunge, Aeon leaped off the pinnacle of stone and fell again into the inky black. Beneath him was Trimble, yanking frantically on the latch. Protesting on its hinges, the door opened. They stumbled out of the chamber, nearly falling over each other, then clambered up the stairs like men possessed. Passers-by, witnessing the incident, saw two men, a younger one in a green cloak and an older one in a gray tunic and breeches, sprint out of the Athenium, shrieking at the top of their lungs. Tore a path down the street and through the market square, knocking over or shoving aside tables, carts, people, anything that blocked their path. So sudden and frightening was their barrage that some townsfolk panicked, expecting an onslaught of gods what to follow the raging madman. With Gaewan leading the way, their foot race led to the Brass Dragon Inn where they stormed the door, kicking it in violently, then still yelling maniacally, scrambling up the stairs down the hall and bursting into Gaewan's room. Slamming the door, they fumbled frantically with the latch. There was no lock. Then pressed themselves against the door and waited, terrified. Shouts of anger and fear floated in the open window from the street below. Nervous. Gaewan jumped across the room and closed the window shutters, shrouding the room in twilight darkness. They're looking for us! Trimble only nodded with wide-eyed dread, his brow dripping with sweat from the exertion of running so far, so fast. Gaewan stopped in the middle of the room and shielded his face with his arm as he struggled to grasp and hold what threads of sanity fluttered on the ragged edge of his consciousness. Spidery fingers tore at his mind, shredded his mental wholeness. Trimble buried his face in his hands and shook. Frantic footsteps pounded up the stair. Gaewan pressed himself against the door and listened. The latch rattled. Lost in a myriad of conflicting impressions, he imagined his pursuer trying to enter his mind, and he held the door firmly. Gaewan? A woman called from memory. Are you there? Murderers! His spittle beaded on the wood. Gods, no! <coughs> Trimble dropped to his haunches. Gaewan, it's me. The caress of her voice beckoned soothing memories. Please, love. Lake is terrified. I can't hold him. Trimble got up wearily and reached for the latch. Gaewan grabbed his wrist firmly. No! Master doesn't want her in. The mage blinked at him, confused. Tis your consort. I have no consort. Gaewan shut his eyes and shuddered uncontrollably as the fires of passion scorched through his awareness, destroying the source of his denial. For an instant, all he saw was the half-elf's adoring gaze as she drank her share of their potion. Spidery talons tried to rip this vision away, but failed. Forcing open his eyes again to dash away the intruding phantasm, he shoved his mentor aside and yanked the door open. What happened? He grabbed and smothered her in a firm hug. 
The sensation of her warm, slender body yielding against his was a balm to his raw nerves, left throbbing from the madness. And with her quiet, reassuring touch, the woman who had bonded herself to him, he regained control. Real. You are real. Of course I'm real, love. What happened to you? Nothing. Everything. He burrowed his face into her auburn hair, scared out of our minds. I was getting worried about you just a few moments ago. What scared you? The gift of Durbriag. Tremble calmly stepped out from behind the door where Gawain had shoved him blindly. There seems to be a powerful force encompassing it that repels anyone attempting to delve within. His mentor's description served to loosen Gawain's tenuous grasp on lucidity, reverberating like a gong, pushing him back to the insanity of a few moments past. And suddenly, with alarming clarity, he understood what had happened. The image of the hieroglyphic staring eye, the tool of a sorcerer. His heart hammered with renewed panic. His embrace tightened around Flynn. No, no, no! He pushed himself away from her and clenched his fists, his entire body quaking. I have succumbed. Gaywan? She reached out to him but was yanked back by Trevor. Gaywan! His mage sight revealed the enchanter's aura brightening and shifting color to that of heated iron. Control your chakras or you will incinerate yourself! Shaking uncontrollably, the enchanter crossed his fists over his chest and struggled to quiet his body. Gawain, Gawain, Gawain am I. Troubled with seeing him in so much distress, Flayna tried to move close to him, but was again held back. Gawain? Don't touch him! Feel it? She felt a wave of heat radiate out from Gawain. You would literally burn yourself. What's happening to him? Something powerful attacked him psychically through the crystal. Out of reflex, he has summoned power to resist the attack. But it has taken too much power, more than he's able to channel. He must master himself or be consumed by the power that has protected him. Breathing deeply with forced control, Gaemon slowly dropped his fists to his sides, the whites of his eyes fairly glowing with intensity. Stepping between Flaina and Gawain, Triple narrowed his eyes as he watched his pupil's aura shift back to its normal colors and ease to a more tranquil state. Are you all right? Gawain managed a nod as he met the mage's concerned eyes. That hurts. He unclenched a shaky fist and rubbed his chest thoughtfully. Must have bumped something during our run. At least neither of you injured yourselves. Though there are several street merchants downstairs who might seek to remedy that. You two cut quite a trail through the square. Scratching the side of his head and mussing what hair was there, Tremble grimaced. Yes, I fear we'll be the popular gossip for a while, the two madmen who escaped the Athenium. Reaching again for the half-elf, Galen hugged her close and kissed her hair. Thanks be to you. He was glad of her devotion and of the strange effect brought about by the bonding potion they had shared. By trying to separate him from his world, the sorcerer had evoked a counterstroke from the spiritual bond between him and Flaina, 
the one anchor that could not be shaken. Her chin on his shoulder, she stroked his back tentatively. What are you thanking me for? Loving me. Flana wasn't sure what he was talking about, but was glad he was all right after his fright. Quite an experience. Tremble stroked the mudcat, clutching his arm. Glink's eyes were wide and beady, glancing nervously every which way for unseen predators, unknowingly reflecting Gawan's agitated thoughts. The enchanter knew that, though he had withstood being dominated by the unknown sorcerer, the darker breed of mages not condoned by the Magian Alliance, he was still caught in the trap. He maintained his calmness with the knowledge that these most twisted of mages could be dealt with once one was aware of their influence. Usually those unlucky enough to be ensnared were not conscious of the change until too late, much like discovering a wound that had festered to the point of being poisonous to the rest of the body. Like such a wound, escaping a sorcerer's trap followed a torturous route through a waking nightmare fraught with mazes and illusion. What bothered him most was why Durbriag had given him such a treacherous thing. Was this a test, or some sort of warped proving ground? Probably, and knowing such offered little solace, for now he was left with more questions and few answers. Test or not, he was determined to face that crystal again and untangle himself. Then he would find a place to hide the cursed thing forever. Tremble was not ignorant of Glink's outward tension, and it worried him. What's on your mind, Gaewan? Jumping slightly at the question, the Enchanter realized his mentor probably already had a good idea what he was thinking. But before he could work up a reply, there was a careful tap on the open door. A tall, husky man with striking blue eyes, long, pale hair, wearing a ragged brown traveler's cloak and holding a staff, stood confidently in the doorway. A narrow, almost aquiline nose divided high cheekbones above which shone a broad brow. Behind him there was a scuffle of feet, there they are, as two smaller men scurried back down the hallway to the stair. Ignoring them, the traveler looked at the two men and one woman standing in the darkened room. I seek Enchanter Gawan. Who sent you? The merchants from the street? Nay, I am trying to complete a task of which I was charged. I must speak with you privately concerning Rothson. The enchanter blinked with raised eyebrows at the stranger. Once again, despite his death, the master enchanter was somehow sending messages to him. Indeed. Well, privacy will not be easily had until my mentor and I go and settle matters with some merchants. A clamor arose from the street below. My task will wait. Very well. Gawon reached for the coin pouch hanging from his belt. Tremble, I believe it's time to spend a little of our money and bargain for damages. It's not the first time, for me anyway, the hazards of being a practicing mystic. Allowing the mudcat to jump off his arm and onto Gawan's shoulder, he then followed him out of the room with Flana and the Traveler. Stepping outside onto the grass dragon's veranda, 
Amon and Tremble faced a gathering crowd of spectators and nine street peddlers, loudly demanding recompense for damaged goods. Upon seeing the two culprits, they closed in around the veranda and shook their fists angrily. Deciding explanations for the cause would serve only to confuse and further anger them. held up his palms to silence the small man. We will pay full price for your damaged wares. Yes, full price. He thwarted any skeptical retorts by pointing immediately at one seller. What was damaged, sir? The gangly beard peddler frowned and blinked with bewilderment, for he had expected an argument of some sort. I, uh... I sell crockery, and a couple of me largest bowls got smashed, and How I... How much for them? Well, I, uh, I, I usually ask two silver, but... Done. Gaewon dug four silver coins from his pouch and tossed them to the fellow. What was damaged, please? Tell me. Dealing calmly and without question, the two men's casual approach filtered down through the group. What was damaged? Three silvers? Four? Will that be enough? Spectators started to leave upon seeing no fight developing. But when the fourth peddler stepped through the line and up the veranda steps, trouble began. This one, a fellmonger, was large and gruff with a bushy beard peppered with white and unkempt long hair. Before Gaewon could utter a word, the man grabbed his collar with both hands, lifted him from the floor, then turned and carried him down to the cobblestones. There's no way that you're gonna smooth let me out of a fair price. Cursed mage! He shook him back and forth like a ragdoll, causing Glink, who was still clinging to Gaewan's shoulders, to lose balance and fall to the ground. Interested that the mudcat was not just a sable lining to the green cloak's hood, he removed one hand from Gaewan's collar and picked up Glink by the scruff of his neck, scrutinizing him with a trapper's eye. I say you're gonna scratch me two crests for me skins that were trampled. <clears throat> Certainly. He met the big man's hard stare, not intimidated in the least by the rough handling. He had faced off many a burly seaman during his boyhood moons aboard the Sea Scout. Release my cat or no payment. Infuriated that someone would defy him so easily without fear, he moved his face closer to Gaewan's. Pay first or I'll have your mudcat's eye. He looked Glink over again. Fact, a mudcat should bring more gold. Not sure what to do at this point, for it was against the king's law to invoke spells in public within towns and cities. Gaewan merely met the man's eyes, hoping he might come to his senses. The pale-haired traveler stepped down from the veranda behind the traitor and tapped him on the shoulder. Release the enchanter and his companion. There is no need for bullying. He has already agreed in front of witnesses to pay the full price. The fellmonger narrowed his eyes as he turned his head to see who dared to interrupt him. Taking in the cloaked traveler who matched his size and build, he smiled, showing a row of crooked teeth, and dropped the mudcat to the ground but did not release Gaelic. Leaning down, he patted Glink's back while not moving his gaze from the intruder. Seeing from your cloth, Huffer... I'd say this ain't no busy of yours. He brought his hand up swiftly to strike. 
Shinsuke Wong, the trader swung his other fist around. Carrying this move with his staff, the traveler spun around out of the way of the second attacker from the ground, a friend of the trader's. Having missed twice, the traveler snatched at the traveler's brown cloak as it swung around and gave it a hard yank, hoping to throw him off balance. Instead, the warm cloak ripped apart and fell off the traveler's broad shoulders. Spinning back around to face the trapper, he planted his staff firmly upon the ground, his countenance flaring dangerously. Enough! Seeing him uncloaked, the trapper gave with astonishment, dropped the torn cloak still in his hands, then knelt and bowed. Several of the other peddlers and spectators also knelt. Beneath the torn surcoat, the traveler wore a white gambeson crossed by a wine-colored leather baldric brocaded with a pattern of blue stone, contrasted sharply by his dark breeches and high brown boots. What earned him the immediate respect, however, was the sash of bright blue around his waist and the twelve-pointed silver star encrusted with blue stone hanging from a heavy necklace. His long flaxen hair glowed in the sunlight. Blessings of the light. A priest of the Blackface Mountains. The trapper stayed his kneeling pose and trembled with dread for, even though scoffed at by some, the priests commanded a great amount of respect. It was a well-known tale that to strike or harm one, or speak in damnation of their spiritual teacher, was a curse for life. Been a fool, wise one. Please have the art to forgive me. Get up, man. I am no greater than thee, and I do not dispense with retribution for your actions. I seek only to enlighten thee. Now, accept the enchanter's payment and be off. Ignoring the peddler standing up and meekly wandering off, Trimble stepped down from the veranda, whisked the torn surcoat off the ground, and handed it back to the priest. I am honored to meet you, sir. What is your name? I am Ablui. With a warm smile, the traveler accepted his cloak and shook it free of dust. Trimble offered his hand in greeting, which was taken and gripped firmly by the priest, who seemed pleased to meet someone not overly awed by his presence. Gawan, meanwhile, straightened his rumpled clothing, had a brief thought exchange with Glink, who had hidden under the veranda, and turned to see the other peddlers and spectators leaving the scene. When he tried to offer some of them coins for damages, he met refusal. Most admitting damage was minor, if at all, and easily reparable. Then he spotted the fellmonger lumbering away in a subdued sulk, a split and torn deerskin slung over his shoulder. Running to catch up with him, he came up from behind, pushed two gold coins into the man's free hand, and patted his back. He really had no quarrel with him, understanding the fellow was simply protecting his interest among his peers in the best way he knew. The peddler stopped and looked at the coins in his hand with mild surprise, then turned his head to grin in return. Slapping Gawan's back heartily, he pocketed the money and stomped off to collect his coins. Gawan headed back to join the others still waiting outside the inn when he halted and considered his immediate plan. He saw Trimble was occupied with Ablui, chatting amiably away, while Flana sat on the veranda steps, waiting for him to return. 
If he acted now, he could get back to the Athenium and finish what had started before his mentor, Orphlena, could think to stop him. As it stood now, everyone would argue, rightfully so from their point of view, that he should leave the crystal alone. But the longer he waited, the deeper the sorcerer's attachment would grow, like a cancer in his soul. And it would take too long to explain what had happened and what he intended to do. Even now, as he stood in the street under the cleansing light of the suns, he could perceive the sorcerer's worm wriggling in the back of his mind, undermining his resistance. He would have to end this entanglement as quickly as possible. Like an arrow wound, the best immediate response was to yank out the arrow. Sending a mental call to Glink, he marched off to the Athenium. His mudcat bounded down the road after him, leaving Flana and Tremble unmindful of either departure as they talked with Aunt Louis. I was correct in your origin, was I not? I. But it has been many moons since my day as a student of the godmen, Mural. What brings you to Falstar and Hopetown? I have just come from the lost city, where I was tracking Enchanter Gawan and his companions. Really? Flaina was admiring Ablui's baldric, sash, and silver star. Yes. I lost your trail at a juncture of several vertical shafts and decided to wait and see if you came out. I must have missed you by a day or so. I found the remains of your campfire outside the archway just yesterday. Ah, yes. Flana nodded absently. That juncture was where we first encountered the were-rats, Rolf and Gunther, in their human form. The two shape-changers guided us down a shaft that made finding our way out next to impossible. Good fortune and the King of Dragons saw us back to the mountainside entrance, probably a day ahead of the priest. Ablui tilted his head at her. How did you find your way out without me seeing you? That is a long and unpleasant story. Not wanting to remember the manhunt so soon after the fact, she decided to turn the conversation to more pleasant things and offered her hand. My name is Flana. My mother told me of the Guardians of the Secret Way. Are you considered one of them? He accepted her hand readily, his cloudy blue eyes gleaming enigmatically as he searched hers. Your mother is indeed well-learned in the ways of the single path. The half-elf shrugged slightly. I suppose so. She could never say very much at any one time about the freethinkers because of my father's disapproval. Would you tell me more about your kind? <laughs> my kind? Indeed. Many view me and my brothers as little more than human oddities. As I told the peddler, I am no greater than any man. I am a teacher of the secret words of the freethinkers. My brothers and I spend many riads living and studying under the watchful eye of our spiritual master, the light giver, Moral, the godman. Few ever see my master or my brothers, for we stay hidden from disapproving and hateful eyes, and protect the ancient teachings from those that would persecute and destroy it. I have heard rumors of miracles and blessings of the Supreme Being channeled by you and your brothers. Are these tales true? Ablui gazed kindly upon the aging mage. 
Because of the Supreme Being's love for soul, miracles always happen, regardless of our presence. These gifts are secret and should be kept within one's own circle. Those who seek the truth of miracles for others will usually reap only gossip and rumor. Truth. His eyes seemed to stare directly into Tremble's inner thoughts. Is within thee, not upon the wind. Flana stepped around the two men, rested a hand on her waist impatiently, and looked both directions in the street. Where is Gaywan? Is he not still talking with traders from the square? I saw him go after that bully trader, but he hasn't come back. Oh no! Trimble's eyes widened as his wardmate, still in the Athenium, informed him of Kaywan's whereabouts. The pinchwing had observed him enter the Athenium and head down the aisle leading to the stairs. And I left the doorway open! He started running down the cobblestone road toward the Athenium. Flana exchanged a mute glance with Ablui, then followed the mage. They arrived at the stone building to find its double doors flung wide and no sign of the enchanter. Trimble led the way to the back of the great room where a shelf case was standing out in the aisle and an ornate archway was set in the wall. Knowing he could trust Flana and Ablui with the secret of the underground vault, the mage waved a hand to dissipate the aura of night over the stairs, then conjured a bluish light sphere that floated over his head as he half ran, half stumbled down the stairs, the half-elf and the priest close on his heels. While the other two gaped in amazement at the giant vault with its thousands of books and scrolls, Trimble threw himself against the only door in the room. Gaywan, stop! The door would not budge, no doubt held by an enchantment. What's happening? She had never seen Tremble, a well-known and powerful mage, so panicked. He raised his palms as he prepared to invoke a counterspell that would break in the locked door. After what Gawan and he had just experienced, he could not fathom why the man would return to risk destroying himself again. Then he felt a psychic reverberation from beyond the door as if a gateway holding something evil and potent had been opened. Flickering in an unfelt breeze, the flames and the crescents along the wall dwindled, as if their very life was being drained. Chapter 10 I know of you, sorcerer. Now I will see you. With Glink curled about his neck, Enchanter Kaywan stood before the crystal and regarded the reflecting facets that belied the malevolence lurking within. Though still troubled with possible reasons why Durbriak had given the artifact to him, necessity of the moment forced him to put these concerns aside. Once finished with the sorcery trying to subdue him, he would consider finding a safe hiding place for the crystal, perhaps within the Athenium, until such time as he could question the King of Dragons. Perhaps he was only supposed to act as keeper of the crystal and not attempt to use it. But then, Durbriag had said specifically, Use it wisely. He had also said the crystal was of great importance to Dragon Regardless, he was forced to delve within the stone again to undo what he had done, disentangle himself from the darkness encroaching on his mind. The longer he delayed, the stronger the sorcerer's influence would become over him. He made a fist at his side as he narrowed his eyes at the crystal. 
I will not be dominated. Remembering the technique that had invoked the crystal's energy the first time, he reached out with his awareness. The reaction was quicker this time, and he was forced to squint in the face of the brightening incandescence as dancing sparks gathered into a single point of white fire in the stone's heart. Knowing this would plunge him deep into the sorcerer's grasp, he stilled his mental resistance and welcomed the invading presence. The blackness exploded again within the shining crystal, this time not randomly spreading, but reaching out toward him with shadowed claws. Beholding the sheer intensity of the expanding force smothering him, his last conscious thought before he succumbed entirely was a desperate plea. Gods, help me. Slowly, he walked barefoot through an enclosed garden, its high mortar and stone walls just visible against the starless night. Tall weeds encroached on the unpruned trees and towered over the stone slabs surrounded with smaller sprouts on which he stepped. He stopped to look at the coarse scarlet robe he was wearing, keenly aware of his nakedness beneath it, then continued walking. To his right, he made a passing glance at a mortar-lined rectangular pool, empty of water, its pale sides bearing painted figures of men and women, writhing in wild ecstasy amidst perverted sexual acts. He looked back to see a fount had started, and somehow the pool was already partly full. He blinked his eyes several times, trying to clear out the blurry edge to everything. Yet the dream, if it was a dream, seemed very real otherwise. Frowning at the pool, he vaguely recalled something about sorcerers and their varying roots of power, water being the most potent. Icy fingers of dread closed about his heart as he realized just how strong this dark mage might be. His voice worked of its own accord. He scarcely believed he was saying the is that you, my master? Yes. A barefoot boy stepped out from behind a large leafy plant and smiled almost lovingly at Gaewon. He appeared to be around 15 riads old and wore dark blue robes with a wide black belt. Approaching the enchanter, he placed his hands firmly on his shoulders and kissed him deeply. Unable to resist, Gaewon felt utter revulsion from the startling sensation of the boy's warm mouth pressing hungrily against his, the small tongue gliding between his teeth. His taste was sickly sweet, like burning sapweed. Hands pulled greedily at his neck, forcing him to reciprocate, if reluctantly. Pulling away and smiling again, the boy motioned towards another large plant nearby. You will enjoy being my servant. Two men stepped from behind the wide leaves, one with an angry scowl, the other with a distorted and stitch-scarred face, as if someone had tried to rearrange his features crudely. The young sorcerer disrobed with a single tug on his belt and stood naked before the enchanter. Now you will pleasure me. He ran the fingers of one hand over his genitals. Seeing Gawan's horrified expression, he passed his hand over the enchanter's eyes, blurring his vision further. This is what I will do for you if you obey. 
He gestured to the man with the mangled face. Unable to control his disgust any longer, Gaewan stepped back. No! A freezing wind howled through the midnight black vault. The crescents extinguished completely. The cold numbing her skin, Flaina pulled close to the tall priest. Her intuition reverberated with peals of danger, and she forced her eyes to stay open in the wind, despite the blackness that had swallowed them. Her elfin night vision could just discern Trimble's outline before facing the locked door. Through the maelstrom of moaning night and shrieking wind, she heard Abui chanting a single syllable, the deep sound vibrating powerfully from his chest. No! She bolted for the door instinctively, but was held firmly at Abui's side, his arm wrapped protectively about her shoulders. She started to struggle and protest when an icy hand seemed to reach into her chest and squeeze her heart. He's going to die, and nothing can stop it. Phantoms. They are but phantoms. She pressed a fist between her breast and tried to breathe. What? Deny them the fear. It hurts. She sank to her knees. His strong hands squeezed her shoulders as he returned to chanting. Gaywan, don't leave me! He was naked and strapped to a board tilting upwards. A young woman with white hair, wearing a red sash across her breasts and thighs, brushed his arms delicately as she danced lightly around him. Don't look up. The board continued arcing, passing the vertical and lowering him into the pool now full of water. The painted figures along its wall seeming to come to life in the ripples. Twisted bodies writhed and squirmed amidst grotesque copulation. Gawan stared in horror at the long, narrow blade stabbing straight up out of the water, aimed at his gut as the board arched toward it. He was the living sacrifice, to be eviscerated alive and then drowned, his blood and entrails to float and blend with the water, transferring his live energy into the pool, soon to empower the sorcerer. He might have called for help, for mercy, but no one was there. No! No! His many commands of power were lost in another world. Her arms gesturing delicately, the woman danced nearby, smiling blithely at him, a lovely distraction from the grisly death approaching him. Then he remembered her warning and looked up. Above and separate from the sacrificial rite, in a sky from another dimension, was a flying figure, flaming with blinding white fire, rising up and away. It was so beautiful. Desperately wanting to touch it, Gawan found his arms free. Immediately he tried to loosen his bonds, but his arms were still held to the board. He looked up again. The winged creature was still there. When he looked forward, the water was getting closer, the arcing board moving him face down toward it. His feet were already wet, and he saw the blade no more than a finger's width away from puncturing his belly. He reached up, his hands not far from the flying creature of white light. 
He winced at the painful prick. The knife was cutting into his stomach. An excruciating pain spread across the center of his back, as if something were trying to snap him in half. Now the fire was just within his grasp. Get out! I must get out! He shoved through a portal he could not see and fell away from the table. The light was fading. Suddenly, his fingers came to rest upon something that was hot and cold all at once. Opening his eyes, he beheld the crystal's white fire blazing from between his hands. The agony of just a few heartbeats past was gone, and now he was warmed, welcomed within the essence of the Dragonstone, its incandescence soothing his frayed senses. Translucent forms came through the locked door and passed out of the vault, the deathly chill receding with them. Flames returned to the crescents. As Flaina rose shakily to her feet with Ablui's help, Trimble glanced around in disbelief. The dusty vault and its uncounted stacks of books and scrolls remained calm and undisturbed. When she looked up to thank Ablui for his kindness, Flaina saw him gazing with a troubled gleam in his cloudy blue eyes at the stairway, or perhaps beyond it. She wasn't sure. <coughs> Gawan emerged, his eyes bloodshot, his pallor white, the crystal clutched in his hand. The mudcat hung limply from his shoulders, its golden eyes closed. No one moved. He forced a wan smile at his mentor and Flaina. I'm sorry. There was no other way. The sorcerer... Sorcerer? Sorcerer? I had to... There was very little time to... No, Gewan. There's nothing for which to be sorry. He touched the enchanter's shoulder softly, then stroked the sleeping blink as if afraid he might break. You should come upstairs and rest. We'll talk about it later. Nodding, Gawan stepped pensively toward the stair, gratefully accepting Flaina's helpful grip on his arm. No one saw the priest's fierce frown of recognition. As Gawan's foot touched the first step, he stood suddenly rigid and dropped his arms. The crystal bounced to the floor of the vault and rolled away. Gawan? He turned about with surprise and terrible pain bent over and spat blood, leaving a crimson stain mingling with the dust on the floor. <coughs> Holding his arms protectively around his gut, he vomited more blood. Uh, I may have underestimated the extent of... <coughs> Ablui stepped forward and deftly caught Gawan in his arms as the enchanter's eyes rolled up into his head and he fell forward unconscious. A Bridge of Doom, Part 3, Enchanter's Lot. The sound plays of the novel were written, recorded, directed, mastered, and produced by Kurt Paul Hotelling. Copyright 2022. Character voices for Episode 8 are performed by Richard Hammer, Darcy Aridel Hotelling, Jim Marshall, Mary Celeste, and H. the Great and Powerful. 
The novel and its sequels, making up a quintology so far at present, are available through Amazon.com, on Kindle Books, can be ordered at your favorite bookseller, or can be purchased directly and at best price with additional bonuses from the author by submitting a request to our email. Music for the Harkin Theater was composed and performed by Evan McDonald, Florian Serral, Francesco D'Andrea, Atlas Mason, High Street Music of London, and licensed by PremiumBeat.com. Additional music was composed and performed on the Sarah Graham Keenan Memorial Organ of NCSA by Robert Kerr Orris. Public domain music performances are licensed under Lieber Lieber Creative Commons. More detailed music and performer credits can be requested from the Harkin Theater at yahoo.com. Sound effects and original foley provided by Cusp Studios, Mix Kit of Victoria, Australia, and the BBC Library. This was recorded on location in The Universe.